You know, last week we began a two-part lesson on what it means to be saved. And we began looking at the different aspects of our salvation. Uh, and it's important to give this enough time. Obviously, we can't exhaustively cover the topic, but we want to give it enough time to, to be introduced to new terms for some of us, for others, just a rehearsal of the words and terms that they have heard before, but it's important because a misunderstanding of what salvation is has eternal impact. If you think that salvation is accomplished for us by our own works plus what Christ did on the cross, we are on a different track. We are on a wrong track. So it's important to look at these things. We were introduced and we introduced and defined the terms divine election, effectual calling, regeneration, faith, and repentance. Uh, we shouldn't be afraid to use these words because they are pulled right out, out of the text. Um, we looked at where that particular aspect has been found in the scriptures, and then we considered what it means, and then finally we looked at what we should do about it. You know, Today we plan to cover the rest of the aspects of salvation, which, is, which are the last six on your list in the handout. Now, similar to last week, we will define it, biblically look to support it, understand what it means, and then conclude it with a few applications for our life. Why do we do that? Why do we have application at the end of the lesson or scattered throughout the lesson? Well, after all, the Bible was given to us uh, to inform us, but more importantly, to transform us uh, into the image of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's begin with what we have here on the screen, number six in the middle, positional sanctification. In a BBC article that was published in 2014 regarding the process of canonization or declaring someone as a saint in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, I understand that there are at least five steps that one has to go through. Uh, firstly, you have to wait for five years before that person has died. Then the next stage is called becoming a servant of God. Once the five years are up or a waiver is granted like it was in the case of Mother Teresa, uh, the bishop of the diocese where the person died can open an investigation into the life of the individual to see whether that individual really lived a holy life. That's the second step. The third step is to show, show proof of a life of a heroic virtue, which is to say, in the third phase, the congregation gets involved in the process. If the congregation approves the case for this individual, it is then passed to the Pope. The fourth stage is verified miracles. Uh, to reach the next stage, this is beatification, a miracle needs to be attributed to prayers made to that individual after death. Someone has died, you pray to them, and suppose a miracle happens, then they have crossed the fourth stage. Uh, there are many in the history of the Roman Catholic world where many are stuck in this fourth stage. Why are they stuck? Because there's a fifth one. The fifth stage is called canonization. Uh, this is the final step in declaring a deceased person a saint. And to reach this stage, uh, a second miracle needs to be attributed to prayers made to the candidate 
after they have been beatified. So, two miracles need to happen after this person dies and prayers are offered to them and the miracles take place. According to the Bible, though, if you're a follower of Christ, then the term saint applies to you immediately. You don't even have to wait to die. Instantly. And what this is, is it's called as a definitive or positional sanctification. Uh, you're declared as sanctified. So like we did with the other aspects, we'll look at this one as well. What does it mean? Bruce Demarest in his work, The Cross and Salvation, wonderful resource. If you are into thinking deeply about these things, he defines positional sanctification. He says, by positional sanctification, we mean the believers being set aside for God's possession, and notice, and declared holy by faith in Christ's justifying work. It, it is that you are declared as holy. You are declared a, a saint. Now, where in the Bible is that found? There are a number of references that I have on the screen. Let me read a few of them as you hear me. Romans chapter 1, verse 7, Paul writes, To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. To the elders in Ephesus, as Paul addresses them, he thinks it is his last meeting with them. In Acts chapter 20, verse 32, he says, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. All those who are sanctified. In Greek, it's uh, the, the grammar, it's a perfect passive. Uh, perfect uh, uh, is, 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 a, is a verb, is an action that takes place in the past with continuing impact in the present. That's what a perfect is. And Paul says here, says here that we are sanctified. Not only that, it's passive. That means it's something that is done to you. And who does that? In our sheet, we have called it a divine act. Uh, to the letter uh, to Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, Paul writes, To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. Saints by calling. Now, what about this particular aspect of salvation? Well, there is at least three things that I want to draw from this. Uh, first of all is the fact that we have died to sin. So sin no longer has power over us. Isn't it Paul who says in Romans chapter 6 verse 2, how shall we who die to sin still live in it? How shall we who die to sin still live in it? Dying to sin means that sin no longer has power over us. In the same chapter in Romans 6 verse 6, he says, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. If you're a follower of Christ, you're no longer a slave to sin. Not only that, we are set apart from sin unto God. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul writes a long list of sinful actions that these individuals were a part of before they came to know Christ. And then he says this, such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ 
and in the spirit of our God. We are set apart from sin and we are set apart for God or unto God. And thirdly, we have a new ability to pursue righteousness and obey God. Having been freed from sin, says Paul, you became slaves of righteousness. You were slaves of sin before, uh, but now you are slaves of righteousness. What is the implication of this particular aspect? You are a saint. Live like one. You don't have to wait for five years for you to die and then be declared at some point of time, nor you have to wait for a man to declare you as a saint. No, God does it. God declares you a saint. You are a saint. That's what the Bible teaches is your status. Because you're positionally sanctified, because you're a saint, you and I are to live daily in a way that does justice to that particular status that we have. And because you're positionally sanctified, it serves as a foundation for you to grow in holiness. You're a saint. And so go live like one. But you're not only positionally sanctified, secondly, you're also justified. Secondly today, but number seven on that list. What does it mean to be justified? You know, this is the doctrine that set the Protestant Reformation in motion. The one which John Calvin actually refers to as the main hinge. Uh, the very pillar of Christianity. The one that is foundational to Christianity itself. Martin Luther actually said about justification, this doctrine is the head and the cornerstone. It alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. Without it, the church of God cannot last for one hour. So what does it mean to be justified? On your screens, I have a short definition for that. To be justified is to be declared righteous. It is a legal declaration. It is to be pronounced as righteous. It's not to be made righteous, but it's to be pronounced righteous. Where in the Bible do we find it? Well, a number of places, if you were to read Romans chapter 3 to chapter 5, it is filled with this particular doctrine. But there's, a one, there's one verse that I would like to highlight. It's Romans chapter 5, verse 18, where Paul writes, so then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Whose transgression was that? Was that Adam, wasn't it? It was Adam. Even so, he says, through one act of righteousness. And whose act was that? That was the Lord Jesus Christ. Through that one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. We are justified. But what about it, though? What can we know more about justification? Well, it's a twofold act. Uh, God credits our, just like we were singing earlier, God credits our sins to Christ. And secondly, God credits us with Christ's perfect righteousness. Uh, God credits our sins to Christ. Our sins were laid on him and his righteousness was credited to us. Uh, this is what students of the Bible call the great exchange. Uh, Chris Anderson, in one of his songs, His Robes for Mine, His Robes for Mine, he says, Oh, wonderful exchange. Clothed in my sin, Christ suffered neath God's rage. Draped in his righteousness, I am justified. In Christ I live. 
for in my place he died. What a great exchange that is. Romans 5.19 goes on to say, For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. It's a twofold act. It's a great exchange. But secondly, it's also all of God's grace. It's based solely on the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, being justified as a gift by his grace to the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Romans 3, 24. Justification, just to clarify, does not make us righteous, but rather declares us righteous. Our righteousness comes from placing our faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. His sacrifice covers our sins, allowing God to see us as perfect and unblemished. And because as believers we are in Christ, God sees Christ's own righteousness when he looks at us. That meets God's demands for perfection and therefore he declares us righteous. He justifies us. So what is the implication for us? Uh, you know, Pastor Tom recently went through the entire book of Romans. It took seven years, but when he was covering Romans chapter 5, uh, he took four lessons to cover chapter 5, verse 1 to 11. At the end of that lesson, which is titled Amazing Benefits of Justification, he says this. He says, as a result of justification, we have peace with God. As a result of justification, we stand in God's grace. As a result of justification, we hope in God's glory. As a result of justification, we rejoice in our tribulations. We are confident of God's love. As a result of justification, we will be saved from God's wrath. Something that we were singing just a few minutes back. We, we also glory in God's person. What a wonderful benefit there is in being justified. So far we've looked at aspects of salvation that in and of themselves don't bring about a change in an individual. They don't make us more holy or more sanctified. But to be positionally sanctified and to be justified are changes in our status, but not in our behavior. And what we have next as the aspect is also a change in our status, but also it gets the ball rolling when it comes to us being sanctified. Uh, from here on, it start be starts becoming individual and very personal. Thirdly, adoption, or number eight, adoption. Here's how Grudem describes or defines adoption. Adoption, he says, is an act of God whereby he makes us members of his family. This is very close to some of us who grew up without a godly family, isn't it? Think of adoption in human terms. I mean, adoption is the process uh, through which a person, namely an adoptive parent, assumes permanent legal responsibility for a child. And once the adoption is finalized, the adoptive parent is then the legal parent of that child. But there's no legal difference between an adopted child and one who is born into a biological family from there on. No difference at all. And what this particular aspect tells us is that God adopts you and me into his family. 
Where in the Bible is that found? Where well, are a few places, but the ones that I would like to highlight is John chapter 1, verse 12. And this is what John writes. He says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Galatians 4, 5, Paul writes, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. You and I, as followers of Christ, are a part of God's family. What about it? What about it? Well, there are a few things that I want to mention as we think about adoption. This is something that was determined from eternity. Uh, This was no plan B after Eve sinned, after sin entered the world. No, God is sovereignly in control of everything, including what he would do after sin entered this world. In Ephesians 1 verse 5, Paul writes, He predestined us to adoptions as adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Not only that, it is what J.I. Packer calls a crowning blessing. He says justification is the basic blessing on which adoption is founded. Uh, this is something only believers receive. He goes on to say this particular status that is adopted means that in and through Christ, listen carefully, God loves us as he loves his only begotten son and will share, them, share with them all the glory that is Christ's now. In adoption, God loves us as he loves his only begotten son and will share with us all the glory that is Christ's now. Wow. That is good news. I remember when I was doing my MBA program back in India, I used to read some American authors. One of them was Philip Kotler, perhaps a name that is familiar for those who are in that world. And he became a believer. And someone went to interview him and asked him, why are you a Christian? Why are you a Christian? And this is how he said. Now, I'm not saying I agree with how he would phrase it, but listen, he said, I am a Christian because that is the best deal in the market. Now, I wouldn't put it that way, but I get the point. There's nothing even remotely close to what God offers us in Christ. One religion, you are never sure until you die, and even after you die, where you will be, whether in heaven or hell. One religion tells you that you are what you are because you must have done something sinful in your past life. We cannot interfere with your life in in, in this moment. There's no hope. There's only depression. Ah, But with Christ, there is adoption. You know, the instrumental cause, thirdly, of our adoption is through our faith. For you're all sons of God, says Paul, through faith in Christ Jesus. What does this particular aspect of salvation do? Well, it changes our relationship with God, doesn't it? We become a part of God's family. Paul in Ephesians writes, earlier you were strangers, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, he says, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Not only that, we have the privilege of calling upon God in prayer. Isn't it our Lord who teaches his disciples, Matthew 6, 9, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
We can call him, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, Abba, Father. A very, very endearing term in the Middle Eastern part of the world for a physical father, Abba. But not only does our relationship change, we also have the privilege of calling him upon, uh, upon him in prayer. But thirdly, we benefit from our father's discipline. Let me encourage you to read Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 to 11, as, we, as, as the writer helps us think through of the difficult times in our own life. And at the end, in verse 11, he says it's making us more holy. That's what a legitimate father does if he genuinely cares and loves his children. We benefit as his children from his discipline as well. Positionally sanctified, justified, adopted, and then ninthly, we focus on progressive sanctification. We're going to spend most of our time here in progressive sanctification. Well, what does it mean? Well, let me begin with, with what it does not mean. There's a few things that I want to mention as we think of what it does not mean. It does not mean, for example, that we have to follow a set of rules. Uh, this is to say you do such and such a thing and only such and such a thing and you will be sanctified. It's not that you do these 10 things and you'll be sanctified. In other words, you don't become sanctified by following a set of rules. Of course, we do have guidelines and rules, but we are not to put our faith in those guidelines and, and rules. Remember in Matthew 23, our Lord would say, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tight mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are things you should have done without neglecting the others. It's not following a set of rules. Not only that, it's not an emotional experience. It's not going to a conference or a worship concert and feeling emotionally charged up and wonderful about yourself. You know, that was, remember, the same experience that the Israelites had when they came out of Egypt in chapter 19 of Exodus. There was, they experienced thunder and they experienced lightning. And a thick cloud came upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet was, was sounded. Yet just a few chapters later in chapter 32, we find them worshiping a golden calf. So it's not just an emotional experience. But thirdly, it's not just avoiding overt sinful actions. Uh, this is to say if you don't smoke, drink, or are involved in overtly sinful actions, then you are being sanctified. You may have heard this, I don't smoke, I don't chew, and I don't go with guys who do. Apparently that was a thing some time back. You know, I don't dance, I don't drink. Uh, remember, reminds me of the story our Lord told about the two men who went in the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this, it says, to himself, praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. No, avoiding overt sinful actions is not sanctification, does not make you holy. Fourthly, gathering spiritual knowledge. Oh, this one hits home, does it not? This one is closer to where we are. Oh, we love reading books 
and articles and blogs. We love to listen to sermons, maybe more than one every day. We love to expand our library. Uh, and yet for many who are merely involved in doing this, find themselves not more holier or sanctified. But can I say this gently but truthfully as I can? We don't find ourselves more like Christ even after we do all of those things, but rather more like the Pharisee that we just read about in Luke 18. Isn't it Paul who writes 1 Corinthians 8, knowledge makes arrogant. Don't get me wrong, mere knowledge is not needed. Knowledge is needed, but mere knowledge is not needed. Knowledge does not sanctify unless you do something with it, unless you act on it. Fifthly, participation in spiritual activities is not the thing either. Uh, this is the kind of individual that goes from one Bible study to another. Every day his schedule is packed with Bible studies and scores of spiritual activities. If you were to look at this person's calendar, it will be filled with a number of sermons that he listens to every day the different ministries that he participates in, his schedule is packed with spiritual activities. But what this person has done is he has replaced a heart that loves God and is obedient to him with spiritual activities. Don't get me wrong, we do need spiritual activities, but those are not the end in themselves. No, you take what you're learning and you put it into action. What this person has done is he's replaced God with spiritual activities. To such an individual, how does God respond? Why don't we turn to Isaiah chapter 1. says, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom, give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. If your life doesn't match up to what I have called you to do, no amount of sacrifices is going to be enough. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, notice what God will do. I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Why? Because your hands, it says, are covered with blood. Even seemingly spiritual activities in and of themselves do not sanctify. How do we define this? Then what does it really mean? Well, here's how Westminster Shorter Catechism defines it. It says, progressive sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. 
We are renewed in the whole man after the image of God. You know, to be sanctified is to be set apart, is to be consecrated uh, from what it's common use it to use it for sacred use. It's of course related to the word saint and both sanctify or sanctification and saints have to do with holy, holiness. Uh, earlier we looked at possessional sanctification which is you're declared righteous. Now we're looking at progressive sanctification how on a day-to-day, moment-by-moment, day-to-day, week-by-week, you are transformed and changed into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, to be sanctified, progressively sanctified, is to be more like Christ. Nowhere in the Bible is this found. A number of places, just a few that I would want to highlight for us. In Romans 8.29, it says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, to be conformed to the image of his son. That's what sanctification is. In Ephesians 5 verse 1 it says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. How many times I'm asked what is God's will? Is this God's will for me? Now, what is God's will? What does the Bible say? First Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That's it. That is God's will for us, that we would be as followers of Christ, moment by moment becoming more like Christ. 1 Peter 1.15, he picks up a phrase from Leviticus and quotes it there. He says, be like the Holy One who called you, but like the Holy One who called you rather, be holy yourselves. What does it mean? What about it? Well, notice there's a few things that we need to understand about progressive sanctification. How does this actually happen? Uh, This is one aspect of salvation that majority of us will spend majority of our time while we're here in this world. So we we need to understand that. There are three things that I want to share with you tonight. If you were there in last year's retreat, no plug for this year's retreat, but definitely want to encourage you to come. But if you're there in last year's retreat, Dr. Daniel, Pastor Daniel, he he walked us through this. Well, there is, first of all, the means. And what is the means of us becoming more like Christ every day? It's God's word. Isn't it our Lord's prayer in which he says, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. A repeated exposure to God's word will help you to be more like Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, in verse 2 specifically, Peter writes, Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect of your salvation. Uh, That's it. It's the word which is the means that God uses to help you become more like him. It's the word that encourages you to sit under God's word and its teaching in a local church setting. It's a word that confronts you. Isn't it James who says it's like a mirror? And as much as you look into the mirror and you see spots, you want to clean those spots. That's what God's word does. In other words, the means that God uses to sanctify us is his word. You cannot cannot become sanctified by reading sports magazines or watching television all day or surfing the internet that has nothing those areas specifically, nothing to do with 
God's word. Of course, there is God's word available on the internet as well. The only means that God has ordained for your sanctification and mine is his word. And what do we do with his word? Well, we read it. Uh, We study it. Uh, We meditate upon it. Uh, We memorize it. And we do all of those things not as an end in itself, but so that we would obey him, resulting in our becoming like his son and our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In our doctrinal statement, the ones that you have in your green booklet, it says, through obedience to the word of God and the empowering of the Holy Spirit, the believer is able to live a life of increasing holiness in conformity to the will of God, becoming more and more like our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, one of the first things I ask when someone comes for counseling, once I know, of course, that they are believers, one of the first things I ask is, tell me how you spend your time in God's Word. Tell me your Bible study habits. And you immediately begin to sense some hesitation. You know why? Because prayer and regular time in God's Word is one of the first areas to be impacted when we are in difficult times, particularly when we are in sin. But that is the means that God has for our sanctification. Your sanctification, your living like a believer, has a direct connection with the word of God. Don't tell me the books that you read if you're not in God's word on a regular basis. That's why on the Lord's Day and during the midweek ministries, we don't sit around and play games or ask each other of their opinion on what God's word means to them. No, no, we read the scripture. We explain the scripture. We apply the scripture. We sing the scripture. We, we pray the scripture. And on our greatest joy and chief purpose as a church is to preach and teach God's word. That then is the means of our sanctification. How is this accomplished? What is the process or or method that is followed? Well, there's a few things that we need to know about the method that God has for us. Uh, First of all, you want to remember it's a process. In other words, it takes time and it takes effort. You don't go to sleep as a baby and wake up as an adult. You don't go to sleep a sinner in the same way and wake up as a saint the next day. No. It's a process, but it's one that is accessible to all. It's not the domain of the special few or just the pastor or the elder. No, it's something that is available to all. J.C. Ryle, in his book, Holiness, he says this. I don't have this quote on the screen, but listen. He says, many admire growth in grace in others and wish that they themselves were like them. But they seem to suppose that those who grow are what they are by some special gift or grant from God. And that, as this gift is not bestowed on themselves, they must be content to sit still. You know, God must have blessed this other individual with this sanctification, with this holiness, but not me. Listen what he says further. He says, this is a grievous delusion and one against which I desire to testify with all my might. I wish it to be distinctly understood That growth in grace is bound up with the use of means within the reach of all believers. 
If you're a follower of Christ, it's within your reach. And that, as a general rule, he says, growing souls are what they are because they use these means. It's not a domain of some special super spiritual Christian. No, it's accessible to each one of us. And not only that, it's both a divine and a human act. And we'll see how that works. But there are three steps that are a part of this particular method. Uh, there's first a putting off. Secondly, a renewal. And then a putting on. A putting off, a renewal, and a putting on. Paul describes this very well in, Act, uh, in Ephesians rather, chapter 4. Why don't we go there as we walk through that particular text. Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to read from verse 20. Ephesians 4, verse 20. Notice what Paul writes. He says, But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. Verse 22. That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, putting off, putting off, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. Uh, that is, stop doing this. Put this off. Stop doing that sin. But not only that, verse 23, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Put off, renew, and then notice verse 24, and put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So as you look at your own life, you consider the sins that uh, perhaps are prevalent in your life, whatever it is, pride, jealousy, envy, anger, lust, laziness. You, 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 you think about them and you plan to put them off. But then what is the next step? It's renewal. Now, what do we mean by that? This is actually the turning point when it comes to our sanctification. It not just help you stop doing something. We want to let God's word and his spirit then change us and impact us from within. That's what renewal is. The word renew is a verb which is in the passive. That is, it is in the ultimate scheme of things. It is something that God does with and in us. Oh, our response is needed. But ultimately, God is responsible in, in the sense of being the ultimate one behind all the things that happen, that he's the one on the foundation of which we are changed and conformed into the image of his son. A God it is that does the renewing, but you can either encourage it or hinder it in your life. Not only that, the change is from within. It is an inner renewal. It, does, it is done at the core of your being, and it impacts your motives and desires and attitudes and thoughts. You know, real change or holy life, a sanctified life, is the result of transformation that takes place in the heart. So look beyond, beyond your behavior and emotions and ask yourself, what is really ruling my heart right now? What is it that is influencing my behavior and emotions? And then ask God to expose your motives and desires and attitudes that are hindering you from becoming more like him. How does this change and renewal take place? Well, Paul answers that question for us in another 
letter that he has written, a parallel letter to Ephesians. It's Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. And there he writes, instead of the word renewal, he says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. You go back again to the means. What is the means of God's change in your life? It is his word. Go down to verse 28 if you're still in Ephesians 4. Notice what Paul writes there. He says, he who steals must steal no longer. So, put off. But, rather he must labor, work hard. That, that, that is the virtue for the wise that he has just mentioned. Performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with one who has need. You're stealing, you're involved in stealing, taking something that is not yours? No. Stop doing that. Doesn't honor God. Put off. Look at verses that talk about that. Think about it. Reflect on it. And then put on. What do you put on? Laborious work. Hard work. But when you do that, you'll have money not only for yourself, but to share with others. And you'll no longer, in those ways, be tempted to sin in those ways. Every corresponding vice, Paul mentions a corresponding virtue. That's what you put on. And when you put on something, we're thinking and acting in, uh, in a way that is consistent with our new self. And we're being sanctified. It is the application of truth to ourselves. In such a method, we have a model, right? We do have someone who is our example in this. It is our Lord Jesus Christ, right? Isn't it Paul who says in 1 Corinthians 11, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Philippians 2.5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. We should be living so much like Christ that if a person who had never met Christ saw you, they'd think it was Christ by the way you acted and by the way you lived. We should think like he would think. We should respond to circumstances that like, like he would respond. Of course, there is a difference between us and him. He is God, and we are not. But in terms of shooting for that standard, he is our model. Our model is Christ. How then do we practically be involved in sanctification? Well, one of the most Realistic things that we can do is identify a particular vice or a sin or a sin pattern as you go home tonight or this week. Uh, perhaps some of us are struggling with lust, others with laziness, slothfulness, sluggishness, some others struggling with envy, or perhaps you're struggling with pride or jealousy or anger. Identify the corresponding biblical virtue. Renew your mind by saturating yourself with what the Bible says about that subject. It's very easy to find out all the verses that talk about a certain topic. Then you create a plan to put off and put on. Progressive sanctification. The next couple we'll just go through very quickly. Perseverance. Perseverance. What does perseverance mean? Here's how Grudem defines it. He says, the perseverance of the saints means that all those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power. 
and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives, and that only those who persevere until the end have been truly born again. Now, there are two words that are frequently mentioned in this particular aspect. There's the word of preserving, preserve, which means to protect, and persevere, it means to persist or be steadfast. And they are closely related and interchangeably used. But where is this found in the scriptures? At least a couple of places that I want to highlight. Paul says in First Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He's going to keep you. He's going to preserve you. He's going to protect you. Not only that, in John chapter 6, verse 37, our Lord says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. And this is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. There is some debate on this third question, what about it, that it's a divine and a human act. It's a divine act in the sense that it is God who preserves and protects us. In John 10, 28, it says, I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. In that sense, it's a divine act. It's a human act in the sense for others, you can show that you are a believer uh, by outward signs, by showing, uh, by obeying the Lord Jesus Christ and displaying that you are one. And you do that consistently till the end of your life. Here, according to the definition that I've shared before, it says only those who persevere until the end who have been truly born again. So you might ask, what about those who fall away? God's word tells us that in the last times, some will fall away from the faith as they pay attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. But there's even more clearer verse than that. In 1 John 2.19, it says, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. If someone says, oh, I was a believer, and then begins to say, I don't like Christianity anyway. I don't like Christ. I don't want anything to do with him. What 1 John 2.19 is telling us is that they were never a believer to begin with. I've had to struggle through that as I grew in the faith because there were many who would say to me, I'm just, I've just black, backslidden. And that seemed to be their permanent condition. But the Bible has no place for that. There are many who come and share their testimony as a part of the membership process. And they tell me, you know, I, I first placed my trust in Christ when I was six. And I really started living like I was a believer after I came out of college. And then I say to them, have you ever considered that you truly became a believer only after you came out of the college? And they begin to think, well, I've never really thought about that. Because obedience is an aspect that is mentioned, strongly emphasized about the one who believes. That's also one of the reasons why we do have a certain age uh, for, for baptisms in our church. And again, it's not something that we have a text for, but it's something that we wisely decided. Uh, could it be higher? It could be. It's 12 right now. But perhaps there are others who understand things only much later, and they, 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 they want to wait. And parents want to wait for some time as well as we see them 
display the fruit of the Spirit. But that is, as far as perseverance is concerned, what does it do to our daily walk with the Lord? It's such a source of comfort and strength and encouragement. You can go through earthly trials in confidence and trust that God is able to preserve us through it. My dad used to say when I was growing up, he was so glad that the book of life was not on earth uh, and that human beings were not involved in writing or putting anything in that book of life, only God is. If it was on earth and if we had the chance to edit it, we would want others that we didn't like to be in that book of life. No, it's in heaven. And only God puts names there and he preserves us. No matter what you are going through at this time, what a great assurance this is. What a great comfort this is to know that you're never outside of God's sovereign control and his providence. Eleventh and final is glorification. And with that we'll conclude. What does it mean? Grudem writes, glorification is the final step in the application of redemption. It will happen when Christ returns and raises from the dead the bodies of all believers for all time who have died and reunites them with their souls. Where in the Bible is it found? Well, a number of places, but there's a few that I would want to highlight. Romans 8.30, again, that particular chapter and those few verses, Romans 8.28 to 30. In verse 30, Paul writes, those uh, whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. A surprising entry from the Old Testament that also speaks to that reality. Remember Job? In chapter 19, he says, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh, I shall see God. What about glorification? There's a few things that I would want to mention drawn from 1 Corinthians 15 and then the post-resurrection appearances of our Lord. Those are the two instances, instances that talk about glorification much more because the body that our Lord has is the body, kind of body that we will receive a few things quickly to go through. It's something that is not perishable, but imperishable. It's not for dishonor, but for glory. There's no weakness, but power. There's, there will be no more weakness, no frailty in temptation, but it'll be powerful. It's not natural, but spiritual. Unlike a natural body that is restricted to time and space, the spiritual body is not restricted to time and space. As we think of our Lord's post-resurrection appearances, you can draw some conclusions from that. Uh, first of all, you can draw the conclusion that our post-resurrection bodies, our glorified bodies, will be recognizable. Immediately, Mary Magdalene didn't recognize, but once he was amongst his disciples, his disciples recognized him. Not only that, uh, a glorified body is able to eat. And some of us will say, Amen to that. It's able to move through matter, as we saw in our Lord's body. It's able to touch others and for others to touch you. And most importantly, it is a body that is unable to sin. What a glorious reality we all look forward to. Quickly, three conclusions that I want to draw from this as we look at application. First of all, as we think of glorification, when we mourn, we can grieve, but with hope and comfort. 
right? When a close friend, a relative, a neighbor, a sibling, a child, a spouse dies, we mourn. We should mourn. We are saddened. We grieve. But we don't grieve as once without hope. We grieve with hope and comfort. If the one who died is an unbeliever, we have no hope for bringing that person back to life. But if the one who has died is a believer, we have the hope of seeing him or her again. Not only that, secondly, think biblically about aging and death. In the stages of life most of us find ourselves in, it's difficult to think of old age. But God's word reminds us that we are to number our days, that we may present to God a heart of wisdom. You know, physically speaking, we're not expected to live forever, but sadly that's how many live like that. To think biblically about aging and death really means that we recognize what God's word says about aging. That it is temporary and that one day, unless Christ, Christ returns, all of us will die. And then finally, live for Christ in anticipation of your glorification one day. Live for Christ in anticipation of your glorification one day. Let me read Philippians 3 as I close our time together. Philippians 3, 10 to 12. Paul writes, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect. Listen, he says, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Press on as we look and long for the day that is to come. Let me close our time in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for your love and care for us as you provided this word to us. It is eternal. Forever, O oh Lord, your word is forever etched in heaven. I thank you for the light that it is and the lamp that it is, that it gives us direction. I thank you for the beautiful reality of our salvation, by the fact that it is monergistic, that is, you alone worked. Your, your work alone is one that is needed for it to be accomplished. Thank you for your love and care for us in sending your own son, even while we were your enemies, that your son died for us. What a glorious reality it is that as we live here on this earth, our goal is to be like him, moment by moment, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year. As we depend on your word, as we feed on, on your word, may it be true of each one of us here that it would be said that something is different. We are no longer the person we used to be. We'll be more like Christ every day. Thank you for our time together. We do pray for the small group discussion. We pray that it would be exalting and to you and Christ honoring. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.